Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back, everyone, to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. Today, I've got Meryl Bond from Melbourne. She's a dietitian from Melbourne, been working in bariatrics for 30 years and is part of Northeastern Weight Loss Surgery and also sees lots of patients from the Melbourne Centre of Bariatric Surgery. Welcome, Meryl. Thank you, Jackie. How are you? Oh, well, you know, I'm in Melbourne, so it's all a little bit grim down here at the moment. Um, oh, I'm so it's sorry. cold and dark and we're back in isolation. So <laughs> don't if you can send some of your sunshine our way, I'd be very grateful. I will definitely try my best to do that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and um, let's hope these next six weeks fly past real quick for you. Yes, we hope so too. <laughs> so today I was just going to run some questions past you because I know that you're quite a voice as far as bariatric surgery goes. And um, also, you know, you've seen a lot in your time around bariatric patients and the different types of surgeries that have eventuated and I'm so interested in getting your knowledge on how patients can best support themselves from a dietetic perspective and things that you've seen that help patients to succeed over the longer term and I, I guess that's what a lot of people are looking for is what do I do after surgery what am I focusing on um, and also how do I get this sort of long-term benefit and sustain my results. Would you agree that that's kind of a focus for some patients? Oh, look, I think that's going to be the focus for every patient, Jackie. Um, as, you, as you've said, I've been in the game for 30 years now, so I've seen many different surgeries and I would say the thing that classed all of them together is that they all have the potential for weight regain. So I mm. think the more we nail that and get that right initially, better the long-term outcome is going to be for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And so what do you feel? would be the cornerstones of post-surgery like long-term eating habits what are the main key factors that a patient should be really focusing on learning about look i i would say that getting onto good solid healthy food is vital and it, it's quite difficult because initially most patients will find that the you know more sloppier easier to eat foods and not necessarily unhealthy foods things like soups and crackers and cheese and you know really kind of mushy lasagnas and things like that go down more easily so they kind of think to themselves well this must be the sort of foods that I'm supposed to eat because I can eat them a little bit easily and I can eat bigger volumes of them but in actual fact, to be really successful in the long term, you want to gravitate to the foods that aren't so easy and you want to find that those foods, you can only eat a small amount of them, that they really fill you up and they keep you full mm. for a longer period of time. So getting onto those really solid foods is is very important. That's a great point. Looking at, you know, making it, choosing foods that aren't easy, which I think we are, I see that in our group. There's so many people looking at and having trouble with that. It's sitting, you know, for too long or it's um, hard to feel like I'm eating something that is that solid. But it's exactly, you know, those kind of foods that would, you know, keep you filled for, for a little bit longer. That's exactly great right. Point. And I think it's a very human nature to to sort of go, well, that, that's it's a bit heavy. That doesn't feel so comfortable. Or, um, you know, when I eat that, I can only eat this much of it. Whereas if I choose that food, I can eat a lot more of it. So it seems like mm. human nature to sort of gravitate to the thing that you can, you can get more down and will sit more comfortably. But that 
invariably doesn't lead to as good a long-term success. And we need to be really careful that we're not really concerned about volume. It doesn't matter how much of that solid food you can eat. The important thing is you can eat a bit of it and it keep it full for a really long period of time. So not being sort of guided by your eyes, being guided by your stomach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also a key. I'm getting, this is great just to start with this first point. I've, I really think we've opened up something here. Um, just, yeah, looking at foods that do keep you fuller for longer. What would you say are the three kind of things that they would need to master um, well, in that regard? I think one of the things that we really need to be aware of, and one of the things that's changed so much since I first started in, in working with bariatric patients, is our focus on protein. And we now know a lot more about protein. We know that protein is really important for healing and repairing early on. We know that you need protein to protect your muscle mass, so you're losing your, your fat, not your muscle. And we know that protein is going to lead to more fullness later on and a better outcome with your weight. So one of the things I really focus on is, is not just making sure that my patients nail their protein intake initially, but they keep doing that throughout, particularly the first year and even beyond that. So whereas we used to focus on it sort of really in that initial post-op phase, we're now really looking at protein foods and protein um, supplements for a much longer period of time. So I think really mm. addressing your protein intake is is very, very important. Um, my second point would be to look at really at eating regular meals and snacks and avoiding grazing so that you're really having those structured small meals and then some structured snacks in between those small meals that are designed to get you through to the next meal. And mm. I certainly find that people who do that better will have a better outcome rather than those that just sort of, you know, snack or graze all day all day long. That can be a real, uh, something that can upset people and really lead to weight gain if they get into those bad habits of never really filling their little pouches but just kind of snacking and grazing all day long. Yeah, not that substantial meal that actually gives the, I guess a lot of it is based on the blood sugar's response to those meals as well and that's where the protein comes in is kind of keeping that level nice and even, I guess, energy levels are even and um, people feel more satisfied and less cravings and that sort of thing as the result of kind of keeping that regular you know substantial protein meals going in and also too i think if you, you if you leave eating or you get distracted and you don't eat and then suddenly you realize you're really really hungry you then tend to make a less desirable choice or you eat too quickly and don't chew and you can get into problems as well so mm. it really is good to schedule those regular meals and snacks as well and uh, we talk about a lot of people talk about hunger when it so after the 12 month mark when things do start to change and hunger returns often I see that is the time where perhaps those protein levels have been dropped out and maybe more carbs are creeping in so I don't know if I'm right but is that a time where patients may be mistaking this hunger return for more change in diet to a more carbohydrate laden diet and less of that satisfying protein sensation after a meal would I be right saying yeah, that or is look, there something else going you on? You certainly could be right about that but I I think there's some multi-factors going on there. Firstly, we do know that the gut is a very adaptive organ and that mm. hormone that is responsible for hunger, the ghrelin, can have the ability to be produced in other areas of the body. So we might have taken out the, the major chunk of it, taking out the greater curvature of the stomach, 
but there's certainly the ability of the of the gut to say, well, I can produce that in a different area. So I think we do get people that um, will start producing more of that hormone so they will get some hunger back. We also get some natural stretching up of the pouch by about that sort of 12-month period. So definitely yeah. needing a, a slightly bigger capacity. Um, if we're talking about sleep and bypass, uh, definitely would get that slightly bigger capacity around that time. So we have probably got a little bit of hot hunger hormone coming back. We have got a, probably a bigger capacity, but we certainly still should feel full on a smaller amount of food. So we just, and at that time, I think it's really important to, to address that protein content um, and making sure that, you know, that would definitely be a factor. As far as carbohydrates go, I, I view them um I think carbohydrates can be really beneficial on the diet because when I say carbohydrates, I'm talking low glycemic index, high fiber carbohydrates. Mm. So your, you know, multi-grain breads and cereals, your basmati rice, your quinoa and brown rice, your pastas, things like that, not, you know, cakes and biscuits and lollies. Of course. And I think that's good to clarify is whether we talk carbs, we don't demonize them because they're such great low burn, you know, slow burning carbohydrates that will give us you know keep us satisfied it just depends on what that's made out of really that's right and you know every bariatric patient will tell you when they first have their first bit of bread or rice how heavy and filling that is and i say yes it's heavy and filling now but imagine how fantastic that's going to be in 12 months time when that's actually going to be getting in there and swelling and helping you feel full feel fuller for longer. So we certainly don't want the major component of the meal to be carbs. We certainly still want the major component of the meal to be protein and vitamin and and then you have high water content uh, veggies and salad and chocolates full of vitamins and minerals. But some carbohydrates in some of those low GI, high fibre carbohydrates can really help swell and fill and create that lovely feeling of fullness in conjunction with your protein and keep yeah. you going full for hours. So I agree with you. We don't want to demonise carbs and I spend a lot of my time um, <laughs> going, you know, this is, this is really even, you know, a, a bariatric diet including carbs with every meal is probably still a pretty low carb diet in a general Australian diet. Yeah, very true. When you compare it to what you could be eating, you know, without that knowledge of those healthy carbohydrates, I feel. And also with the normal volumes that people can consume them in. Mm, so, um, very true. Yeah, so, so I, I really encourage um, low GI, high fibre carbohydrates in conjunction with the protein and the veggies and salad as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so as far as establishing these new habits go, I think the mainstream before surgery, we're not really looking around for protein and, you know, meeting this target each day. So a new patient or someone who's really looking at those long-term results, where can they find this um, support for really understanding food and, um, you know, getting that rhythm going of establishing what a healthy meal plan might look like? What's the best kind of option for patients after surgery who are, you know, really making a go of turning things upside down in effect? Well, I would be hoping they'd be getting their education and, um, from their point of contact, which is their surgical practice. So I would be hoping that they're, they're seeing a dietitian at least once pre-surgery and then following up 
quite regularly post-surgery and would be, you know, as the journey, the weight loss journey continues, learning more and more about what are the right foods to put in this new little small stomach. So I would be hoping that they're getting um, their education from from us in their surgical yes. practice. Um, there's some really great resources out there, you know, some great bariatric surgery uh, recipe books and, and resources out there. There's also things like the CSIRO diet, which sort of fits in really nicely with being a higher protein, lower but all the low GI, high fibre carbohydrate type diet. Um, I think the important thing, Jackie, is to really avoid fad dieting and, and sort of extreme dieting as well and going, you know, no carb or keto or, you know, any of the totally. very yes. sort of quick fix diets that we all hear about every time we turn on the telly or the radio or open a magazine yeah. when we're in the doctor's surgery. Um, you know, they're full of them and they're all going to work for a small amount of time. But the question you need to ask yourself is, am I still going to be on this diet in five years' time? And if the answer is no, don't exactly. do it now. That's his, And it's more about lifestyle. Can I sustain this methodology of eating for the rest of my life? Is it something that I can do when I'm on holidays, when I'm at work, when I'm at home? It's not going to turn my family's life upside down and, um, you know, eliminate a range of different food groups um, for long periods because I, I feel that there's a lot of that support in the you know, mainstream of different diets that are very limiting and, and unsustainable in a lot of ways. I couldn't agree more. And I think <laughs> for your bariatric audience out there, they would all be nodding their heads because every single one of them would have done those diets before. They would have lost weight. They would have regained the weight plus a little bit more. And, you know, we're looking for a much more sustainable and maintainable practice after the surgery. Mm. And that leads me to another question about, you know, down the track I see a lot of um, when, when weight is maybe starting to creep back up or hunger is coming back in and there's maybe um, a time for a bit of a readjustment, a lot of patients talk about going back on to shakes. Do you encourage that sort of thing? Look, if, if a patient comes to me and they're really determined that that's what they need to circuit break, I would be supportive of that. Um, from a sort of a physiological point of view, it doesn't make a lot of sense because shakes are liquid and they go through that small kind of funnel stomach quite easily. So um, that's, you know, ideally they're not really the foods that you want your patient to be eating. You want them to be eating really solid foods. So from that perspective, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if they're really thinking that that's all they can do and they really need that circuit breaker and they just want something to really focus on just for a couple of weeks, then I'm going to work with them on that as well. But mm. my preference would be to say, well, let's have a look at what you're doing now and how can we fine-tune and, and make some changes within what you're doing now that's probably going to be more maintainable and sustainable into the future. Mm, I guess, too, it's part of that learning about what the needs are and um, what a sustainable meal plan looks like rather than, you know, always defaulting back to another kind of diet. Correct. Um, mm. And I think that's really where I try to steer people in the direction of food because 
we've, as you've said, we've all done 100 different diets in the past and it's not necessarily establishing a new way for that person. No, and it's once again going to be a little bit of a quick fix. It gives you a quick run on the board, but unless you then transition off that and start doing all the right maintainable and sustainable changes into the long term, you're just going to lose that benefit you got from two weeks on a on a shake diet. That's thank you for that. So getting on to nutritional um, issues after surgery, we know that the anatomy is changed forever by these gastric sleeve and bypass surgeries. Do you see much in the way of nutritional deficiencies in your practice? Look, you know, we do. Um, I would say I spend quite a deal of my time chasing up bloods and ringing people and, you know, correcting nutritional deficiencies. So it is it is very common and there's a number of reasons why that occurs. Firstly, because of the reduction of acid in the stomach. There's a reduction of intrinsic factor, which helps to absorb uh, vitamin B12. There's altered gastric emptying. There's a lowered intake of food. And if you've had something like a gastric bypass, there's also a decreased absorption of nutrients. So there's lots of reasons as to why people post-bariatric surgery can get nutritional deficiencies and do. Um, That can all be corrected by being on lifelong multivitamins. Um, And I think everybody has great intentions of doing that, but some people, it falls by the wayside. Um, a lot of patients will tell me they feel so fantastic that they stop taking their multivitamins. Mm. And I say to them, so you didn't have a car accident last year? Did you stop paying your car insurance? And they'll, <laughs> they'll look at me like I've got two heads and I'll say, well, it's the same thing. <laughs> you know, you're taking your yeah. multivitamins in order to prevent those nutritional deficiencies happening. And, Jackie, nutritional deficiencies are not pleasant. They are hard to treat. Mm. They're horrible. You feel terrible. And I would prefer people don't get into that situation. So I guess I'm a a little bit brutal about it because, as I've said, I've been in the game for a long time, so I've I've spent, you know, quite a deal of time um, having to treat people's nutritional deficiencies and my preference would be not to have to do that. So, Yeah. um, yeah, we just... We've got great supplements around now, so there's no excuses. They're, you know, tailored and they're much more pleasant and easier to take and all those sorts of things. So we don't really have any real excuses as to why people don't anymore, but I do recognise that some people can find that really difficult. Yeah, there's different thoughts on it. I think some patients are under the impression that it's a 12-month commitment and I don't know whether that's because they're under the care of their team in that kind of intensive period, um, whether that's the understanding. But I certainly speak to a lot of patients who thought it was just for the short term and, and we it's a great opportunity to have that conversation just to remind them that these anatomical changes never change um, and there's a whole lot of permanent um, situation where you know, different absorption of different nutrients is heavily affected. So it's, um, it is a commitment. And it's, I think, also bringing a, a new idea of prevention in, whereas a lot of the time in our kind of uh, medical history, we've been shown to just deal with things when there's a problem rather than to prevent something happening that might cause you, to cause you problems down the track. Mm. Would you agree with Absolutely. That? Absolutely. Prevention's always going to be better than cure. Always. So, um, yes, I, I, we'll, we'll keep uh, flying the flag for that one, Jackie, I think. But, I mean, we have, <laughs> I appreciate we have in all our education <laughs> material, you know, in bold, this is for life and, 
Yeah. But, you know, people don't read their education material two years after they've had their surgery. So I guess it's just with time and... Top of mind, yeah, getting that um, yeah. reminder on a regular basis, which it, it again speaks to the you know importance of establishing this lifelong relationship with your practitioner and your dietitian, um, so that you you know continually tweaking and checking in just to um, you know make sure that you're not heading in the wrong direction and um, getting support before there are problems. And I, I see that that's the role, and it's an ongoing role and relationship with a dietitian. Um, you know, many years after surgery. Totally agree. And I think, you know, because our operations have changed, because they are metabolic and malabsorptive and not just restriction operations anymore, there is the potential to have a lot more nutritional deficiencies. So iron, B12, vitamin D, vitamin A, even zinc deficiency we're seeing. Um, so it is, it is a big deal and it is something that we really need to make sure that all our listeners know that they need to be on lifelong multivitamins, calcium, potentially vitamin D and, mm. yeah, maybe whatever else yeah. pops up. But, yeah, definitely. And as a patient who's, um, you know, cruising along there after surgery, what sort of things do they present to you with and um, what are the symptoms you mainly see when there's deficiency? Um, look, the biggest one would be iron and that's when the patients are ringing and saying, I'm, I'm just feeling so fatigued. I'm, you know, I wake up in the morning and don't even feel like I've been to, been to bed. Um, you know, they just feel awful. They just feel like everything's an effort. Um, and you can pretty much tell by talking to them that iron's going to be real culprit there. Um, we also get people experiencing, uh, you know, not necessarily things that they would go to the dietitian for, but um, when I say to people, oh, look, your B12 is really low, are you, are you waking up with tingling in your hands and feet? Or, and they'll go, oh, yeah, every night my hands are asleep or I'm finding my foot's falling asleep on the accelerator or whatever. So they're not, not necessarily... Um, linking that to a nutritional deficiency and then we find uh, you know i'm getting a lot of vitamin a deficiencies at the moment and there they have to be pretty diabolically low before they're going to uh create any symptoms but mm. i certainly don't want it to get to that level where people are having no. eyesight difficulties because their vitamin a is so low so we're wanting to catch that and treat it before it gets to well before yeah. there's change yeah and I think that's yeah again those changes that um, I actually was talking to someone on the phone last week and we were you know discussing nutritional deficiencies and what you might see um, and I mentioned the night blindness with vitamin A and she said I can't drive at night I had no idea that's what it was yep. um, and that's the we are seeing quite a lot of vitamin A um, particularly in bypass yeah. um, but, yeah, it's, it's those insipid kind of little changes that we just might not link to nutrients that are quite easily corrected. Um, and if not correct, corrected and um, taken care of, are any of the effects irreversible, Meryl? Um, look, I certainly thiamine early on, but that's a whole different podcast in itself really and I guess just <laughs> just a note to anybody out there that if they are experiencing you know really extreme vomiting in the first 
couple of weeks post-bariatric surgery that thiamine levels can be really at risk at that point in time. And um, if they do end up presenting to an ED department somewhere, that it's really important that they do say that they've had bariatric surgery and could they please have some thiamine that goes, you know, into the drip or into the yeah. muscles. Um, and that's so, so important because thiamine deficiency in those early, I mean, it's very rare, but it has happened and is quite documented and that that's awful, you know, that can be irreversible. Yeah. Generally, no. Most things that, in my experience have been able to be reversed, um, yeah. which is very encouraging, but it's sometimes not easy. You know, sometimes it involves really big doses over quite a lengthy period of time and a lot of monitoring, a lot of blood tests to make sure we get that right or it might be infusions yeah. or injections injections so um just best to avoid that if possible yeah and it is avoidable so it's something that um with good care and um your own kind of responsibility i suppose um it is something that's totally preventable um but yeah i think there's a lot of talk about the mental health kind of feelings that come with low iron and low b group as well mm. like to, you know it's kind of a feeling of depressed mood and low energy and just kind of disinterest yeah. which is quite easily turned around with um with those beautiful b group vitamins Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um so i guess um looking from a dietary perspective does your approach to each different surgery change like is there a certain um, approach for a gastric sleeve patient as opposed to bypass or do you find that um, your recommendations of kind of um, meal planning and that sort of thing are roughly the same? What are the differences there? I wouldn't really differentiate them at all now. I think our approach uh, is, you know, based on the ASMBS, the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, with their um guidelines from I think it was 2017 they really treat sleeve and bypass very similarly now so I think um, most of us in the industry are really treating sleeve and bypass pretty much the same as far as nutritional content and multivitamin and mineral recommendations absolutely and there are recommended dietary phases um, so the initial phase after surgery is the liquids phase onto purees and then onto solid foods. Why do they exist? What are we trying to achieve by this um, period of kind of reintroducing food? What's important there? Look, there's no sort of really worldwide best practice guidelines for um, that kind of texture modified period. So we all do it a little bit differently and I think we all sort of do it the best, but it does vary um, between practices. And, and look, there are only minor variations. You might be on liquids for one week and puree for three, or you might be on liquids for two and puree for two they're very minor differences and, I, and my advice would be you just go with whatever your surgical practice um, advocates because that's the way they perceive uh, it, it needs to be done and that's the way they want mm. you to do it um, look as I said there's not a lot of evidence for it but we would certainly see it as very important initially just to make sure that that you know after the after the operation a lot of swelling around the operation site so allowing the stomach that opportunity to heal and repair before sort of hammering it with all sorts of more difficult to digest foods so yeah. having some liquid period um, we do two weeks and that's a pretty standard sort of time it's also an easy way to get in nutrients and to get in your protein in that liquid time as well so that's a little bit easier for the patient to sort of look at the 
whatever they're having and see it very clearly marked on there, gets a little bit more mm. difficult when you're doing it with your food. And then um, progressing the stomach through onto sort of, you know, once again, pureed or, or, you know, fairly soft foods and just allowing that pretty new little just operated on stomach. You don't want to, don't want to hammer it with anything that's abrasive or difficult mm. to digest. Um, there is always the chance of a leak, so we want to allow that staple line or, um, you know, that, that new opening that the bypass has got to heal and repair. So I, I really encourage everybody to really comply with that with that part of the process. Now, some people find that that really drags and they are really ready to, su- to have something a little bit more solid, but my advice is always, well, we don't have a window into your, into what's going on inside you, so let's okay. let's just, you might feel great, but let's just allow that internal healing to, to occur and um, stick to the rules and it won't be long before you can sort of start progressing your textures, tex- textures up and then getting new foods yeah. in there. I think that's right. It just gives the body a chance to rest and heal. I see a lot of patients who are um, keen to get back to work and get back into life. And it is an exciting time where they're, you know, really are starting this new journey. Um, But yeah, I think it's good to remind that it is a marathon, not a race and just letting the body have that kind of time to recuperate and reset and get ready for these new foods is a really important part of the process as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've got a huge bank of experience in dealing with patients. Um, What do you see that sets some patients apart from others? What are the strengths that you see might, you know, help one person progress along this path and stay that way? what are the differentiating factors you see? I would say for me, the most defining factor is is the most successful patient is going to be the one that doesn't rely on the tool. So those patients that see the tool exactly for what it is, that it's a, a great tool, but that's all it is. And it will help manage portion size. It will help manage hunger. It's not going to tell you this is a good food, this is not such a good food or, you know, how how to put your meal together or what choices to make. And so so I think um, the best patients to me are those that really change so much about their whole entire lifestyle with respect to what foods they choose, how frequently they eat, um, how much exercise they do, and really addressing any issues of non-hungry eating. So um, they're the people that see this operation as an adjunct to their success, not the Mm. whole basis of their success. Tell me about non-hungry eating. What does that mean? Well, I think most of us know that we don't just eat because we're hungry. That <laughs> if we did, we're, I don't think any of us would get into any any weight issues. But so many other things cloud that. And if we look at the way people have been brought up, and I've put myself into this, you know, whenever as a child anything went wrong, my mother would would bake a cake or, you know, open the packet of biscuits. And so we as children learnt that um, if anything went wrong, then food was a way of of making us feel better. And, look, Mm. it does initially, Jackie. It does make you feel better for a short period of time. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. But it's very (laughs) short-lasting and you're generally left with feelings of, oh, why did I do that? That hasn't helped at all and now I'm going to gain weight or it's going to prevent me losing weight or whatever. So it sets up a whole heap of, you know, other not very nice feelings and negative feelings. 
So, but, you know, a lot of my patients will say, particularly after the surgery, they'll say, oh, I didn't realise, you know, when you asked me if I was the person who, you know, ate for emotional reasons, I would have said no, but now I realise I actually ate for all sorts of reasons because I was happy, because I was sad, because I was lonely, because I was bored, um, just because it was, you know, the evening and the kids were in bed and I turned on my favourite Netflix program. I suddenly find myself in the cupboard or the, or the fridge. So people really learn a lot about their own strengths and weaknesses after they have this surgery and I always really encourage them in that first year in particular when you've got really good restriction very little hunger that's a really nice time to sort of go look possibly any habit eating or emotional eating or non-hunger eating is potentially going to come back into my life and how am I going to deal with it how am I going to recognize it and how am I going to deal with it when it does when it does reappear so that's a Good really point. nice time to to just be prepared for that and I think that's another thing that um, our really successful patients will do and they'll actually recognize that this has not gone forever this is just the beast is just dormant at the moment but when I hit a road bump and that might be you know, I have to put mum and dad in the nursing home or my dog dies or I've become redundant we don't know what those what those you know, roadblocks are going to be, but everybody will encounter a difficult time. And if mm. you've, in difficult times, if one of your strategies been to eat more, I mean, look at COVID, how many people are complaining mm. that they're eating more during COVID? Um, mm. You know, then being armed, knowing that, well, this is a difficult time, this potentially might be something I might start to do and having some strategies to deal with that is very, very powerful. Uh, yeah, I talk about that first year as the big um, real time of establishing things that will um, support you if things do get tricky or when hunger does return. Um, and looking at that period as almost like the honeymoon of use this while everything's kind of quelled and really establish those new habits. Um, Looking at that as well, looking at establishing new habits and um, the long term, um, I guess, again, looking at the lifestyle changes, what are the things that you see really don't help a patient when, you know, um, what, what kind of things get in the way and um, what kind of problems do you see arise that are kind of almost a sabotaging effect or um Yeah, look at limiting their I think on the flip side progress. of success, Jackie, is those patients that just want the tool to do it all for them. They don't actually want to put much input towards this at all. And as you so rightly said, that honeymoon period, that first six to 12 months, it seemingly looks like the tool is going to do it all for you. And then, of course, as most honeymoons do, they have to end. <laughs> and that's when that patient will find that they actually need to put some input towards this. They need to actually make a concerted effort about the food choices that they're making. They need to really look at the time frame that they're eating. They can't just, you know, they, they need to look at are they doing any exercise or activity because it's not just going to keep going on on its own. And look, every now and again you do find, and I, I have some of these and I'm sure um, anybody in the profession would be aware of it, you do occasionally get a patient who just looks at you with complete disbelief and says, but I can't go out and eat a normal pup meal anymore. And I mm. go, well, you've had, you know, 80% of your stomach removed. That 
was never going to be on the card. <laughs> it's, it's like, but I thought I'd be able to just eat normally. Just the same yeah. but less and it's not the key really, is no, it? No, no. I mean, that, that's that's rare but it does happen and I feel mm. terribly sorry for those patients because they just, it's a big adjustment. They just haven't really got it in their head really that this is, you know, there's, there's no such thing as having bariatric surgery and not having to make... It's not going to change. Yeah, that it's not going to change your life, and you're not having going to have to make really good changes as well. So yeah, very true. Yeah. When you say it's getting it into their head, how much do you think psychology comes into the way a person eats, and what do you see the best way to master this area would be? Oh, I think that's a, a massive part. You know, if your head's not in the game, you're not in the game. So I think that's a really fantastic. Um, you know, really looking at those two connections and they really can't work independently. And we're finding with so much information out these days that patients are coming along really quite educated. And, you know, I, I think I had two or three last week out of my eight to ten new patients um, that already said to me, oh, I'm already doing this and I've lost some weight. And, you know, they were already making these amazing sustainable changes before they'd even walked into our practice. And I immediately think you're going to do really well because you're not yeah. you're not having um, you know a food funeral or some patients will call yeah. it and, <laughs> and just about to say going that. out to all your favourite restaurants and having as much um, smorgasbord you know or you can eat yeah prior you, before yeah. you come into the surgery because you know. You, it, it's not like you're never going to be able to eat those foods again with the new op newer operations, the sleeve and bypass. You are going to be able to eat. Our aim is for you to be able to eat a small amount of everything. So it's mm. not deprivation, it's discerning. So, oh, good point. As one of my patients said to me, I now have precious real estate and I love that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah, I love it too. And I, I said, can I steal yeah. that from you? Because I love that. Oh, that's, <laughs> what a great attitude. And I think that's the key, and I've talked about this in my group, is if you're going to do it, have your personal rules. So I have a personal rule that, say, if someone offers me a Portuguese tart, I that's prime real estate you know uh, whereas if they're offering me chips and I, they're not my thing that's my personal rule is well I don't do that so it's having these things that you do do and you don't do so that it kind of um, it makes you more discerning and it really helps you to stop and think about well do I do that is that the thing I do now um, or is my special thing if I'm really going to do this is it you know a, a Portuguese tart or a um, piece of chocolate or whatever it is that really must float your boat before you're going to engage in it. I think um, it just kind of keeps that front of mind understanding of not, you know, it's not a, uh, everything's not on offer, but if it is on offer, it's got to be really special. <laughs> it sounds like a really nice way of putting mindful eating. So, yeah. you know, just sort of, okay, is, yeah, like you said, is this going to float my boat? Is this what I really feel like? Is this... I mean, I think initially you've got to think more nutritionally than that. You've got a, you've got a yeah. very limited opportunity to nourish yourself and you need to think 
protein and, you know, vitamins and minerals. Bang for your buck, yeah. But later on, and I think what we're more invested in and what you're talking about is sort of, you know, maintaining over that long period of time. And I think that's a lovely way of looking at it, Jackie, that, you know, mm-hmm. does this float my boat? Is this something I really fancy at the moment? Um, is it my Portuguese tart? Am I going to be able to sit and really savour this? And, you know, I think they're great questions to ask yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that. Um, it, it is being mindful. It's looking at something and thinking before doing. And I think we're not really taught how to do that. I think when you wear, like you were saying, our understanding of food and the culture and socialisation around food is framed really early on in life that it either placates you or makes you happy or, you know, um, is used as reward or is used as punishment. And, you know, don't leave the table until everything on your plate is eaten. That was how I grew up too. Yes, me too. Um, If you want it or you don't want it, you're not going until that food has been consumed. So I had the same thing walking away from the dinner table, feeling like I was going to burst, and that became the normal way of um, my understanding of how a meal finishes is that you must be splitting at the seams because that's the end of the meal so to train yourself back to that kind of 60 to 70 percent full um, and to be hungry is a really foreign feeling Mm -hmm. and I do talk about that with patients who are complaining about hunger it's quite normal to feel hunger but I don't think we let ourselves do that often enough and it kind of instills this feeling of panic of oh my god I'm hungry and it's not a bad thing it's actually a message of yeah it's time to eat but and I don't know if we let ourselves get to that feeling not for you know you wouldn't go hungry for five or six hours but it's a it's actually a cue to have another meal and yes we would be hungry every couple of hours if we've only got a tiny little time Mm, so I think it's getting a better understanding of um hungry is not dying (laughs) certainly not in Australia (laughs) actually something to listen to no there's not many of us that are going hungry so I think it is like it's a lot of these sensations are foreign Oh, look, I agree. And, you know, having to talk to, talking to patients who are, you know, a bit further down the track in those subsequent years and, you know, some of them will say, oh, I get hungry again three or four hours later. And I just say mm. that's completely normal. That is your body telling you that you need to physiologically have some food. There's nothing wrong mm. with that. It's the choice you then make that is correct that that dictates success or failure so if you you know get hungry around that three or four o'clock period where your blood sugar level drops at work and you've still got a few hours of work left that's completely physiologically normal but if you then reach for a chocolate bar every day that then becomes an issue whereas if you pull out your piece of fruit or your nuts or you know whatever other good solid healthy snack you're high protein yogurt or whatever, um, mm. then that's a, a good thing to be doing to your body and will pep you up and get you through till you get home and, and get your dinner. So I think we need to really concentrate on what is normal. Correct. And, you know, what we can expect yeah. and how to what we do with that. That's yeah, it's a great point, I think, particularly because we do talk about hunger as a negative. Yes. Um, and there's this expectation that you'll never be hungry. Um, but, yeah, it's completely normal if you've sort of increased your muscle levels, increased your activity and lost a lot of body fat, you might find you are hungry more often. Um, so, it's yeah, it's actually a good sign. Um, I don't tend to worry about return of hunger um, so long as the hunger is fixed on a small amount of, of food. 
Mm. People talk about this um, early hunger like um, and wonder about silent reflux. Do you see a link between that kind of constant feeling of hunger and a reflux situation or is that a fallacy? Look, I think you've always got to be a little bit careful of whether someone is experiencing reflux because if they are, they might be only having a really small amount of food and that's causing reflux and therefore they're having to stop eating. So, uh, look, I I think it's worth um, ruling out, definitely. But I also think, too, we, we do give people unrealistic expectations and, you know, people's hunger responses will be very different and are really someone who gets a very good hormonal response after a sleep or bypass may not get any hunger back for two years. Someone who doesn't get such a good hormonal response may get hunger back after three months. So I think we need to be, we don't know when we operate on someone mm. what their what their hormonal response is going to be. And that's why I've stopped sort of, you know, really saying, oh, you won't get hungry, you won't get hungry for 12 months, because you may. Um, that's why I tend to say, look, I'm not really all that concerned about you getting a little bit of hunger back, so long as you are able to cure that hunger on a relatively small amount of solid, healthy food. So I yeah, hope that... Making good choices. Yeah, and I hope that kind of reassures people a little bit that hunger isn't mm. necessarily something they need to be really afraid of or feel that they've failed if they're getting a bit of hunger. We cannot mm. dictate your hormonal response to this, these operations. That is something genetically determined so we can only work within the framework of what you get and yeah looking at the person in front of you and that's where I again think um, checking in on a regular basis with your professionals is huge because these you know fallacies or information that we pull from the internet of you'll never be hungry again (laughs) Um, yeah it's a good opportunity to have those conversations and and I think it you walk away with a better feeling of success when it's um, put to you in a way that makes sense to you and is pertinent to you rather than a blanket statement you see online somewhere. So I think there's um, yeah huge relevance in keeping in contact with, you know, professionals who've seen it all before and can give you a really quite, you know, frank and succinct answer around it. Oh, totally um, agree. Mm, we really want to keep so, our patients for life. That, that is our aim. Yeah, I don't know. I always um, give the analogy of, you know, would you go out and play soccer without having a coach? And I think that's just a game of soccer. And here we are trying to live our lives with no coach. Mm. And if it's something that we haven't got experience in and we're turning upside down, would you not look for coaching and support and education and, um, you know, someone to hold your hand a little bit along the way? It's... um, I think it's a huge undertaking, this expectation of really instilling these huge changes in our um, lifestyle and eating habits that obviously have had um, less success in the past. It's um, it's a lot to ask of someone to do it on their own. I just can't see it going. Oh, and we've got history to tell us it doesn't go well, Jackie. I mean, once again, mm. drawing on 30 years of experience, that was how we used to do it back in the old stapling and the non-adjustable gastric band days, you, you you know, put in your operation and go, we'll see you later. And, wow. and, you know, I still see some of those people today that have just struggled from day dot really and have regained all their weight and are very unhappy with it all and feel it's all their yeah. fault, but they were never followed up by their professionals because that's not what no. you did 25 years Not education. No, 
Oh, yeah, amazing. So, I've come so far. Oh, so now um, my preference is to use a chronic disease management model um, mm -hmm. because obesity is the most chronic disease that we have in our society today. And like your example of the coach, someone doesn't come in and get diagnosed with diabetes and get put on insulin and get told to go away and never come back. There's, there's, you know, different insulin regimens, there's different medications, there's all sorts of different things that come up all the time. You go back a couple of times a year and check in with your endocrinologist and get all your bloods done and, and people do that and yet they feel they can have bariatric surgery and disappear. Yeah, I, that's a great analogy too, isn't I it? I just you know, say to sense. them these days that it's, it, it is a chronic disease management model. Mm. We can help you this tool can help put you in remission from your obesity but in order to stay remission in in remission you've got to keep doing all the things that put you in remission and part of that is to keep coming back and engaging with your team and again it's a preventive approach and i don't think we're sold that you know when we're it's a very uh, reactive society as far as medical sometimes that we live in and we tend to get things fixed when they're really broken but looking at what you're saying about the um, chronic illness kind of um, chronic disease protocols. Um, yeah, I think when you really scratch the surface of a uh, gastric sleeve or bypass patient's health history, it's a complex and multi-system um, impact that, you know, this one tool, like you say, is not the fix for it. And um, those systems that have been affected by obesity really need to be monitored and cared for. Mm. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh, what a great session. Thanks so much for your time. I've got one last question and parting question. What's the most, I guess, important piece of advice you would give to someone who's um, either undergone or looking at having bariatric surgery? I think um, planning and prepping is really important. If you're, say, you know, that example that we used before and it gets to three or four in the afternoon, you've had a really busy day at work and you didn't, you need a snack and you haven't planned and prepped and got one with you and there's a vending machine in the next room, then you're setting yourself up to make a less desirable choice. Whereas if you've got your snack with you, your little packet of nuts or your high-protein yogurt or whatever it happens to be, um, you are more likely to make that good choice. And the same goes for meals, to make sure you've got, you've had breakfast before you leave the house, you've got lunch with you, which could be last night's leftovers or a little tin of tuna and some salad, and you've, you know that you've got the chicken out of the freezer ready to be cooked up that night. So once mm. again, as an adjunct to success, those patients who prep and plan, I think, do really so much better. Um, and I guess if I had to sum up... The one thing I don't want people to do over the 30 years of history is... <laughs> I'd love to do this. <laughs> it's very simple. Do not eat crackers and cheese as a meal. That is my oh, absolute <laughs> number one. I, and as I say to my patients, you're having me over for lunch. Are you going to give me crackers and cheese? And they go, oh, no. And I go, well, don't give it to yourself. It's not a meal. Yeah. It's not filling. You will end up eating half a box of crackers and, you know, 10 slices of cheese. Too much cheese. So, yeah, um, yeah that would be my parting, <laughs> parting gift to everybody. <laughs> right, the cheese and crackers of the list. And if you've got any of my <laughs> patients out there, they'll be laughing and saying, I've heard that before. <laughs> 
I do hear a lot of cheese and crackers in the site too. So mm. <laughs> that's great advice. I'm so pleased you could avail yourself on this cold and wintry Sunday afternoon in lockdown. <laughs> Gives me something to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, outside of planning next week's dinners, I think. <laughs> I'll be here, so it won't matter. I don't have to do much oh, exactly. planning now. I'm, I'm going to be here. So uh, yeah, yeah won't, be, won't be straying too far from the family home, unfortunately. No, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, thank you. I can't believe what we've gotten out of this session. It's just been so revealing and um, really supportive, I think, which is, you know, obviously what our intentions are. Um, I'd love to talk to you again and maybe take a different angle. So if you've got time for that, we can discuss. But um, Meryl Bon, thank you so much for your time. And um, thanks again. Thanks, Jackie. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.